Our sermon text this morning is James chapter 5, verses 13 to 20. James chapter 5, verses 13 to 20. Uh, Before we have the reading, we'll pray. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks for the Holy Scriptures. We give you thanks for that which is the very words of God. We pray, Father, that we, we would be given ears to hear, eyes to see, and willing hearts that will be understanding and obedient. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. James chapter 5, starting our reading at verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Amen. May God bless his word to us. As Christians in the modern age, I think one of um, the greatest errors that we can make one of, the, one of the ways of thinking that we fall into without... Often we're not even conscious of the fact that we've fallen into this way of thinking is that we start to think that our life is basically compartmentalised and you have a Christian life and you have a secular life or you have a Christian life and you have the life that you live out in the world. And you start to think that with um, the vast increase of scientific knowledge that we have in the world, that... There are things which are spiritual and there are things which are not. And there are things which the Bible covers, but it doesn't cover other things. Other things are better covered by the knowledge and the wisdom that mankind has gained over the centuries. But that's not the way James is looking at the world. And that's not the way James is telling the people who read his letter to look at the world. As far as James is concerned... The Christian life is a life which, in which everything, every aspect of our lives is integrated into our walk of faith in obedience to the Lord. As far as James is concerned, there's nothing that you set aside from your Christian life, your Christian walk. There's nothing that you would say, I don't have to pray about that because that is an issue of the world, all I need to do is to see some kind of qualified expert. Look at what James says, or look at the um, examples that he gives. People suffering. Is there anyone among you who is suffering? People who are cheerful. People who are sick. People who have committed sins. 
I think we've all just gotten picked up somewhere along, along the way, haven't we? We're somewhere there in James's net. He's cast a net out over the congregations and, well, he's just picked up every single person therein. People who are suffering, people who are cheerful, people who are sick, people who have sinned. It covers everyone. And when you start to really think about it, it covers every aspect of our Christian lives. Is there anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Suffering what? Suffering how? Suffering in any way. Illness? Well, we're going to speak specifically about illness shortly, but illness? Problems at work? Problems in relationships? Problems in in an emotional sense? Problems even in a mental sense? What should anyone who is suffering do? Pray. Let him pray. There's nothing set aside here. There's nothing that we're told this is someone else's problem. This is some other issue. Seek a professional. Now, I'm not saying you never seek professional help and I'm not saying you never seek counselling. Don't. I'm not sort of trying to run right up to the edge of a cliff and throw myself off it, you know, test the Lord, prove my faith. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is there is nothing here that James or there is nothing in our lives that James is saying should not be brought under prayer. And if any professional in any way is able to help us understand something, they're able to help us because whether they know it or not, they're serving God according to the laws that God has built into his creation. That's why a scientist who is an atheist can do good, could, for example, make a medical discovery that saves lives. Why? Because God has built the laws, the laws that govern our physical world into creation, And what that scientist has done through study and dedication, whether they know these are the laws of God or not, what they have done is that they have found a way to utilise that which God has built into creation for the benefit of people. And so they're serving God. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. My friends, everything must be brought under prayer. Every trouble, every problem, every affliction, Every illness of every kind, every emotional problem, every conflict, every relationship problem. Pray. Bring it to the Lord and pray. Now, I'll make admission. There are times when I don't want to. There are times when I feel I'm just too busy and this problem's got to be solved and something's got to be done. And quite often at those moments is when my wife says, now let's sit down and pray before you get moving. And I get annoyed. I get annoyed. But, 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 and she says, no, we're going to sit down and pray. We're going to pray about this. Then we're going to do something. We need these reminders. We need to remember, bring it to the Lord in prayer. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. I love 
I love the way James, as he said one thing against another, because here's something I've noticed. I've noticed it in my life. I wonder if you've noticed it in your life. You actually do get to the point of you actually do get to the point of your Christian life where when things are going badly, when things are going when when you're having a tough time, when there are problems, you sort of do pray. You remember to pray. You remember to call upon the Lord. But when you're having a really great time and when the blessings are being are raining down like showers from heaven, do you remember to sing praise? Do we remember to sing do we remember to um, give God the glory for all the good that we receive? For good food, let's start with meals, grace. Is, is James saying you must say grace before every meal? That's not exactly what he's saying, but um, in a way it is what he's saying. Be thankful for every good thing that God gives us. Are we thankful for our husbands slash wives? Are we thankful for the life partners that God has given us? Are we thankful for our children, grandchildren? Are we thankful for the material possessions that we have that make our life a comfort? Are we thankful that we live in an age where we are more comfortable than just about any generation that ever came before us? No one here is a particularly wealthy person, yet the truth is in many ways we live in a luxury that royal families did not know three or four hundred years ago. Hot water, warm houses, high-quality cotton sheets, effective painkillers, effective medicines, effective surgeons... We all have this expectation, which is in some ways unrealistic, but the simple fact of the matter is our average age expectancy is well up into the 70s, in some cases the 80s now. Unheard of. Unheard of, even 150 years ago. Unheard of. And nowadays, when, when one of um, our, when a young lady, you know, a young wife gets pregnant, how often do we think, Oh dear, there's a 50% chance she's not going to make it. How often do we think that way? We never think that way. Why? Because it no longer applies. But basically right up until the turn of the last century, right through the 1800s, a young lady gets pregnant, more or less a 50% chance that she's going to die as a result of that pregnancy, that that first pregnancy may well kill her. Medical knowledge was not what it is today in many different ways. Are we thankful? Are we singing praises to God? Do we praise God for the fellowship that we have, for the church that we have, for the friendships that we have? For our work, our sanctified work that God has given us to do. Here we are. We're meeting, we're worshipping, we're under the radar. I won't say too much about it, but we're under the radar. Are you thankful to God for that? Barely noticed. It's actually a good thing sometimes. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. And I would almost say, not only is anyone cheerful, but my friends, 
never forget that there are reasons that we ought to be cheerful. Never forget that there are reasons that we ought to be thankful. Never forget that there are reasons that we should always be praising. Always. Every day and every moment of every day. We ought to be giving our God the glory and the praise for all of the many gifts that he has poured out upon us. James then throws up this one. Is anyone among you sick? Illness. Illness. We all know it from time to time in one way or another. Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save the one who who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Well, there's a lot to be said there. Okay, what's happening here? Well, we're still basically reading a letter that was written in the apostolic age. Turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 6. We're going to start reading at verse 7, Mark chapter 6, verse 7. And he, that is Jesus, called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, Stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. The ministry that the Lord had entrusted to the disciples is continuing. And it's continuing in and through his church. I would say that at the times James wrote, he was expecting many miraculous answers to prayer. I would say he wasn't just hoping for, he was actually expecting many miraculous answers to prayer. So is anyone sick? Mind you, what what, what sicknesses would we be dealing with here? Any. Is anyone sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Imitating, imitating the work that the Lord himself gave to the twelve when he sent them out two by two. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. James has now made a connection that we're very uncomfortable with. What's the connection? He's saying that sometimes illness is associated with sin. Sometimes. Sometimes illness is associated with sin. When Jesus healed the paralytic by the pool of Bethsaida in the Gospel of John, and afterwards Jesus met him, what did Jesus tell him? Go your way and sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Sometimes illness is a result in the providence of God of sin. 
Verse 16, James says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Would I claim to know such a time? And the answer is no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I think, I think the letter of James was written to a church in a different time and circumstance. This is before what we would now call our New Testament, our canon of Scripture, had been drawn together. Many believe James was probably the earliest epistle that's recorded for us in Scripture. The church, the word of God as it was preached at this time was still being confirmed with signs and wonders. And so the church in prayer was still expecting to see miraculous answers to prayer. And those who were ministering in the name of the Lord still had a degree of spiritual insight and discernment that I think is actually very uncommon in this day and age. I don't believe that that, that that time of miraculous signs and wonders continued on and on throughout church history. Basically, as the apostles died, the signs and wonders died. But the apostles had seen to, um, had, had fulfilled their ministry in the writing of the scriptures. You see, the signs and wonders, what were they but communication? They were in a manner of, in a manner of, um, in a manner of speech, they were preaching. But now God has given his word, the Holy Scriptures. We're better off having the word than we are having miraculous signs and wonders. So James is instructing the church there in the apostolic age to expect signs and wonders, to expect miraculous answers to prayer. James has made that uncomfortable connection. Sometimes sickness is the result of sin. Sometimes sin leads to sickness. How would I see things today? Well, first of all, I believe that we're still commanded to pray for the sick. That elders should still go and pray for sick people in their congregation. They can choose to anoint with oil. It's there in the scripture. It's commanded. But would I expect miraculous signs and wonders to be occurring at such times? And my answer is no, I would not. Although I would expect prayers to be answered. I would expect prayers to be answered. And if a person is healed with the use of medicine, it's a healing that came from God. For reasons that I've already outlined, it was God who put the materials in the world that could be used as medicines. It's God who, in, who put in place the physical laws that govern the creation that we live in, that make certain medicines, chemicals, etc., more effective. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So James is expecting here that in times of illness, Christians would seek to examine themselves and clear their conscience. Now there's an interesting one. Have we thought about that? When you have an illness, when you're feeling really bad, terrible, high temperature, whatever, you're laid up in bed, things have gone wrong, have you taken the opportunity to examine yourself and clear your conscience before the Lord? 
Because that's what he's saying we should be doing. We should be making sure that there is nothing between us and God that God is counting against us. Confessing sins. Verse 16, he says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. He's still making that connection of illness and sin. How, how, much, how much Christianity as it's practised in the church is practised as a facade? As a facade, as a look, as an appearance. How many people want people to think that they're the one who's got everything together and nothing ever goes wrong? I've got it all right. I handle all problems. I'm strong. I'm vigorous. I'm mature. And in how many churches do you find that if someone actually does for a moment confess weakness, troubles, etc., that um, people turn on them? Rather than supporting and building up the weaker brother, they actually turn on them. They don't try to make things better. They, they actually enjoy making things worse. James says, therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So what's the response when a brother or a sister let you know that they're struggling? I'm down. I'm struggling. I've got problems. It's not going right. What's the required response? Is it this? Well, you should. You should do this. You should do that. You should get it right. Wake up to yourself. What kind of person are you? Are you a hypocrite? Don't you know that Jesus has given you the victory? Therefore, you shouldn't be doing these things. Is that the response that James is speaking of here? Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. When the Christian has screwed up their courage to come to you and to honestly confess that they're struggling, it's not time to get the knife out, my friends. It's not time to start talking down to people. This is how the Spirit of God works amongst the congregation of the people of God. He draws us together in our weakness that we may strengthen one another that we can pray for one another. When you know that a person is troubled, when you know that things are going wrong, what are you being called to do? You're being called to pray for that person. And when you yourself are struggling, and when you yourself are fighting with some particular sin or some particular burden, whatever it may be, and you speak to someone, what are you doing? You're calling for them to pray for you. Pray for one another. Notice it says, and the Lord will raise him up. What does that mean? I'm not sure, but it certainly sounds like things are going to be better afterwards than they were before. The Lord will answer prayer. If a person is being raised up, well, they're down. Now, in Scripture, the phrase there, raised him up, it's actually, it's often used to speak of being raised from the dead, brought back to life. The Lord will raise him up. The Lord will bring a person to life. 
We could take that literally, we could take that metaphorically. It will be better for a person who has been prayed for once they've been prayed for. They will, in one way or another, have been raised up. Raised up, set upon their feet, that they can stand in the presence of God, praising, praying, rejoicing, worshipping. Raised up. James then goes on to exhort with the example of Scripture. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Now stop. You're going to say, I'm not a righteous person. My friends, who does God call righteous in the Holy Scriptures? Who does God call righteous? You see, we read it and in the back of our, in the back of our mind, we think works. Righteous person does all the good stuff, does no bad stuff. Really. And Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And King David, blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. David was considered to be righteous in the sight of God. Who are the righteous in Scripture other than the faithful? The ones who believe the words of God. They believe the convicting words of God. You have sinned and you need reconciliation and cleansing. And they believe the restoring words of God. I have heard your prayer for forgiveness and I have made you my own. They're the righteous people in Scripture. No one else. We don't have permission to sin, but we're fools if we start to think that by our own works we make ourselves righteous. We're made righteous by God and any good works that we do are God working in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. Or as Jesus said, the flesh profits nothing. Apart from me, you cannot do anything, any good thing. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. My friends, if you are in Christ, you are considered by God to be a righteous person. It's not on the basis of your own works. It's not on the basis of who you think you are. It's not on the basis of your sins that you're considered to be righteous. You're considered to be righteous because you are in Christ. So what is James saying to us, to people like you and I? Our prayer, because we are seen as a righteous person, has great power as it is working. Our prayers are not a waste of time. Our prayers for the sick, our prayers for the troubled, our prayers for the burdened, we're not wasting time. This is effective. This is what God wants us to do. This is how we strengthen and build the church according to the word of God. Now James pulls an example from scripture. It's really interesting. Verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not, might not rain for three years and six months and it did not rain 
on earth. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 17. Verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Stop. What's happening there? Elijah says to Ahab, king of the northern kingdom of Israel, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So God has obviously told Elijah, this is what you are to say to the king. In response to the wickedness of the nation, in response to their sins, I'm sending a drought, a famine. Things are going to be bad. James tells us in James chapter 5 at verse 17 that not only did Elijah say this to the king, he prayed it to the Lord. He was told what to say and in being told what to say, he was told what to pray. Say, it will not rain. Pray, it will not rain. Pray according to the will of God. Pray according to that which God has said. Elijah prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. You see what's happening there? You know, we're told something about Elijah. Verse 17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Think about it. What is it saying? What are we? What are you, what are you like? Would you describe yourself as strong, spiritually pure, self-reliant? It's not the way I'd describe myself. Just as we're reluctant to think of ourselves as righteous people. But what was Elijah? Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. James says this just after he says the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Think about it. Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was counted righteous. Elijah shares a nature just like ours. You see what James is saying? God heard and answered the prayers of Elijah. You who are in Christ, you actually have more than Elijah ever had. More. Oh, Elijah had a vision of God. Elijah heard the still small voice. And we have more. Why? Because Elijah never read in the gospel that Jesus said upon the cross, it is finished. Elijah never read in the gospels that Jesus said to the thief, on this very day, you shall enter into paradise with me. Because Elijah never read that on the third day, Elijah never read that on the third day, the tomb was empty. 
because Elijah never read that on the 40th day the Saviour ascended on high to be enthroned at the right hand of God and there to rule for and on behalf of his people over all of creation. Elijah was a man of God with a nature like ours. Elijah was accounted righteous by faith, as indeed you and I are. Elijah prayed that it might not rain for three years and six months, and it did not rain. Elijah spoke according to the word of God. There shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And so it was. Now do you see the exhortation of James? We have more than Elijah ever had. Our position, our place in Christ as the very people of God inhabited, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, empowered, enabled, is more than Elijah ever had or knew. Pray, pray according to the word of God. Verse 18, he then says, And then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Let's just have a look there. Turn to... First Kings chapter 18, and there we look at verse 1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. And Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself, and Obadiah went in another direction by himself. Now I'm just going to... uh, Very quickly summarise, Obadiah runs into Elijah. Elijah says to Obadiah, go and get your master, the king. I need to speak to him. The king is brought to Elijah. Verse 17 now, 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 17. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, that's Elijah, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Once again, to quickly summarise, so all the people were gathered. Elijah sets a test. The God who answers by fire, he is the Lord. Remember, they slaughtered oxen. The prophets of Baal danced around the place, went mad, spent the day like idiots. They cut themselves. They carried on. They prophesied. They prayed. They pleaded. They begged. They got nothing. No answer. Waste of time. Fools. Idiots. Elijah mocked them. Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself or he is on a journey or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. The mockery. You've got a God and he's not here because he's outside at the men's. He had to take a little visit to the water closet. The mockery of it. And then Elijah says, come here to me. And he takes his own sacrifice, sets it all up, covers it with water, surrounds it with a trench, fills the trench with water, calls upon the Lord. We know what happens. The Lord answers. Fire comes down and takes up the sacrifice and the water. 
And then Elijah has the people seize the prophets of Baal and kill them. Now, we're at verse 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is the sound, for there is a sound of the rushing rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel, and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. What's he doing? You know, what's he doing? What what does the author there want us to understand? He's taken up a position of prayer. He bowed down with his face between his knees. Prayer, supplication. He's begging the Lord to do something. And he said to his servant, go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, there is nothing. And he said, go again, seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stops you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. So Elijah had prayed that it would not rain for three years and six months, and then after the, after the contest with the prophets of Baal, it was time for the rain to come. And Elijah prayed that it would rain. We wouldn't actually know that he had prayed it would not rain if we didn't have the book of James. Because it doesn't say in 1 Kings chapter 17 that Elijah was praying it would not rain. It says it in James chapter 5 verse 17. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. That which the Lord has said he will do, he does in answer to the prayer of his saints. Will people be called through the preaching of the gospel? Will people be saved through the preaching of the gospel? The scripture has said yes, that the preaching of the gospel is the means by which God saves unto himself a peculiar people. It is therefore to be accompanied with prayer. Is the church to be built? Yes, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. How is this building to be accomplished? In answer to the prayer of the saints in accordance with the words of Jesus. He will build his church and we will pray that he builds his church. We must pray that he will build his church. Do we want our fellow Christians to be built up in faith and grace and Christ-likeness? Do we want our fellow Christians to have the victory over sins and over their sin and to live lives that are fitting to their confession, to live lives that bring glory to God in heaven. Is that what we want? Yes. How do we get it? Well, we don't get it by pushing people around. We don't get it by bossing people around, do we? We get it through praying, prayer. We pray for each other. We pray for each other. Try and remember to always be praying for one another. When you're suffering, pray. When you know that someone else is suffering, pray. When you have a need, pray. When you know that someone else has a need, pray. Be praying. Because God 
counts us as righteous in Christ and has made each and every one of us a priest, as it were, in the kingdom of God. We intercede one for another. We intercede for the nation around us. We intercede for our loved ones. We intercede for people we know. We intercede for people we do not know. Moving on, verses 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back. Okay, let's stop and think there. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back. Here's James's general diagnosis of Christians with spiritual problems. What's his general diagnosis of Christians with spiritual problems? In the first instance, in some way or other, they have wandered from the truth. They've forgotten the truth. They've listened to a lie. They've let go of the truth. Maybe they knew it and it's slipped their mind. Maybe they sinned and in hardening their heart in their sin, they, as it were, deafened their own inner ear to the word of God. They wandered from the truth. You know, I've, I've heard people say things like, why are you so worried about the truth? Why are you worried about that? Don't you just want to worship God and love Jesus? My friends, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. My saviour, the one who shed his blood for me, told me that he is the truth. You know, it's not false doctrine that saves. It's not the lies and inventions of men that save. It's not hearing and listening to lies that makes a person Christ-like. It's the truth. We're dealing with truth. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth. So there's the general diagnosis. You might see something different. Someone obsessed with someone with whom they ought not to be obsessed. Someone struggling with some particular sin. Someone not rejoicing in the Lord. In some way or other, that problem started because they wandered from the truth. And so the aim of our ministry in restoration is to bring someone back to the truth, submitting to the truth, hearing the truth, believing the truth, remembering the truth. And remember along the way, there's this confession of sins and the prayer, the prayer of the righteous for the one who is confessing their sins. They've wandered from the truth and someone brings him back. Verse 20, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, it's a little unclear here. I'm thinking it's one of those situations where when something is unclear, both apply. James is either saying that the person who restores someone to the way of truth has saved their own soul from death and is covering over a multitude of sins. Or he's saying that the person who has been restored to the truth has had their soul saved from death and their sins covered. 
Both work and both make sense. We read earlier in Ezekiel chapter 3, what did God say to Ezekiel? You've got a message to preach. You go out and preach it. If you fail to preach it, the people who stumble, fall and die, their blood will be on your head. But if you go out and preach the truth, whether they listen and they fall and die or whether they hear you and repent, you have saved your own soul. Their blood will not be upon your head. So Elijah, I'm sorry, Ezekiel, in his ministry of preaching the truth, was both saving his own soul and the soul of those who listened. And so the wording here in this last verse of the book of James is a little ambiguous and it seems to be suggesting that the preacher will save both his own soul or the teacher or the restorer will save both his own soul and the soul of the person who listens will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, what does that mean, to cover a multitude of sins? I mean, I can't, in, in, in one respect, I can't cover my own sins, let alone yours. The covering of sins in the Old Testament was always, it always meant that the person had been saved and forgiven. Turn, for example, to Psalm 32. And look at verse 1. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. David, his sin had been covered. He had been saved. When James speaks of covering a multitude of sins, I don't think he's speaking of our ability to save one another. We don't have that ability. I can't save you. You can't save me. We can't even save ourselves. But what would he be talking about? Well, let's have a look. Go to the um, book of Proverbs, chapter 10. Now, this is probably that which James is quoting. Proverbs, chapter 10, and we're going to look at verse 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offences. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offences. If you find out about the sins of a particular person, let's say, as James has said, they confess their sins one to another, you could do two things, couldn't you? There are two possibilities. You could tell everybody what their sin is, which would be hatred stirring up strife. Or you could be a trustworthy friend and counsellor covering up offences. I'll keep my mouth shut. No one needs to know. The person has confessed their sins. We're praying about it. I'm praying for that person. That person is praying about it. God hears and answers prayer. I shall cover up the offence. There's no need to let it be known. There's no need to share the bad word around. Remember, if James, you know, let me just, I've repeated these things a few times, so I'm hoping they're familiar to you. What is James's founding presupposition? That his half-brother Jesus is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Saviour. What is the main point of his letter as we've studied it again and again and again? What just keeps coming up? 
with regards to how he expects Christians to behave. Control your tongue. Control your words. What's he saying to me? Watch what you say. What's he saying to you? Watch what you say. Control the way we speak. Control what we speak. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offences. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. I'm going to start reading at verse 7. 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Since love covers a multitude of sins. Is that saying that love approves of sin? That's not what it's saying. Does that say that love pretends that sin does not exist? That's not what it's saying. Does that say that love makes out that sin is not important or dangerous, that sin is nothing? Sin as you please, God forgives, who cares? That's not what it's saying. What's he saying? Well, he's saying in a way exactly what James is saying, exactly what the author of the proverb is saying. In love, we do not use the sins of our fellow believers to stir up strife and to destroy them. We just don't do it. In love, we do not do it. You don't have to look too hard at any fellow believer to know that there are problems there of some kind or other, that there is some kind of sin in their life, some kind of weakness. It's only an issue of time. Honestly, spend enough time with anyone. It's true. We all know this. Just because you know that someone has some kind of sin in their life doesn't mean that you need to share the bad news around. Believers are forgiven sinners. Believers are Christians striving and battling with the indwelling sin that remains in them. No Christian has yet been perfected or finished in this life. It's a work that God is doing and ultimately it's finished on the other side of the grave. That's where it finishes. All Christians are expected by God to be growing in sanctification, to be battling with their sins, to be as it were, becoming more Christ-like as life goes on. But even so, no Christian reaches sinless perfection in this life. Not possible. Not going to happen. It's not according to the word of God. We love one another by not publicly denouncing them. Now, I'm not dealing here with uh, what I would call public and disgraceful sins. If a leader of a church is guilty of a public and disgraceful sin, well, they're going to have to be denounced. If a member of the church is guilty of a public and disgraceful sin, well, they're going to have to be disciplined by the congregation. Okay, that's, that's different. If you, know that, if you know that someone is committing adultery, if someone is sinning in some terrible way, if someone is openly untrustworthy in business, a robber, a thief, a liar etc., etc. 
and they will not accept private rebuke and they will not repent, well, then a church must make its denouncement of them, disassociate from them in terms of the sacraments. They must not be given, as it were, the communion. But that's not what we're talking about here. What's James talking about? If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, the quiet personal relationships that cement churches together. That's what this is about. The quiet, loving relationships, the holy, sanctified friendships where we're strengthening and building up one another in prayer. In those situations, we should be trustworthy, willing to cover up one another's faults and weaknesses. They don't need to be publicised. They don't need to be shared around. That person is being faithful and honest. They're dealing with their sins and their weaknesses. God is dealing with their sins and their weaknesses. In that way, in that way, we as believers cover a multitude of sins. So, my brothers, says James, verse 19, my brothers... Who's responsible for this kind of pastoral care and love? Who? One person? Two persons? Only a pastor? Only the elders? My brothers. My brothers. There are ministries in a church that are not for everyone. Preaching and teaching according to the gifting of God for example. But with regards to this ministry of loving, of praying, of being a trustworthy friend, of turning people back into the way of truth, it's a general exhortation to all Christians. Pastoral love is not only for pastors. Pastoral love is something that all of us are expected to practice. It's a commandment for all of us. We're all to love one another. We're all to be willing to cover sins. We're all to be willing to restore someone to fellowship, to walking in the truth, to leading someone in righteousness. We're all to be ministering, as it were, one to another in small ways. The Lord's accomplishing great things in his church. There are things happening that we can't see. There is more going on in the world than we understand. My friends, everything that he is accomplishing, all of the great things that he is doing, he's doing them in answer to the prayer of his saints. God himself inspires the prayer. God himself awakens within us the obedience that brings us to prayer. God himself enables us to pray. God himself answers our prayers. So as we're um, parting now from the book of James, let's um, try and make some summaries, a quick summary of the whole book. James's half-brother Jesus is Lord and Saviour, the Lord of glory. Christians betray their weakness through misuse of the tongue, through misuse of speech. Anyone who controls their speech perfectly, James has said, is a perfect man. So ultimately, our words matter. 
the way we speak, the things that we do matter. If we are truly growing in Christ-likeness, well, then we are truly growing in wisdom with regards to that which we say. We are to be a people of prayer, loving one another, remembering that the Lord is near at hand. And we are to be a people who are trustworthy friends, one for another. Trustworthy, faithful, people who can rely one on another, people who know that we are loved and people who love. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your holy scriptures. We give you thanks for the book of James. We give you thanks for the portion that we have studied here this morning. Father, may that which we have heard be taken to heart, applied and obeyed, that we would be Christ-like, that we would be pleasing in your sight. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.